everyone and welcome to the second series of No Really I'm Fine. We are so excited to be here, like just to, you know, bring you another series really. So thank you so much for everyone who's listened to us so far. And if you're, if you're new, welcome. I'm Gemma Sherlock, your host, and I am joined by our other host, Michael Pearson. The other host. The Michael other Pearson. host. The other host. No, it's <laughs> no. okay. Um, yeah, it's really exciting to be back actually. Um, we, when we did series one, we just sort of did it as a bit of an experiment for a little bit of fun, see how that would go. And actually the podcast resonated with tens of thousands of people. You know, I think we reached nearly a hundred thousand people in series one. And it's talk- quite a scary thing when you're talking about mental health, because a lot of those stories were intimate to those guests, you know, to know that that many people are listening is scary, but also really supportive at the same time. It's really nice to know that our listeners are identifying with other people's experiences and it just proves the point that no one's alone in, in the battle with, with mental illness. Well, it's fantastic to be back because today is World Mental Health Day, which is fantastic. And because it's a great day where we can just really openly talk about our health and well-being. And, you know, it's great that we could come back today for a second series. We're hoping to do between 15 and 20 episodes. Let's see how, let's see how we go. We, we found, yeah. I don't know about you, but series one was fantastic. But for us, it, by the end of the series, I think I was quite mentally drained. Yeah. You know, and a lot of those episodes, some of them were presented the triggers for us didn't they so um as much as we love doing them some of them are really hard experiences for both me and Michael but at the end of the day we just really it, it paid off in the end because we really felt like we were helping people and just to um go back to the fact that it's you know it is World Mental Health Day but we should be talking about mental health every day and that's what we hope to do with this podcast. As we do. So if this is your first time listening, we don't normally air our episode on a Thursday. It's always a Tuesday, but we just thought we'd come back on a day where we could reach as many people as we could, basically. Yeah. What can people expect, we think, for series two? More lovely, inspirational people. Um, I feel like with series two, it series one was touching on people's experiences. Series two still does that, but it goes one step further and showcasing those people like what what are they doing so there's there's scarlet who who will come to in a minute Mm. there's ben and there's hope as well and each of them have their own sort of experience of mental illness in terms of anorexia in terms of um suicide in terms of depression and anxiety and each of them are doing wonderful things to help people with those illnesses Yeah. And also, um, for those that listened in series one, I did a couple of episodes where we went out into the community and looked at projects which were pioneering and shining a light on mental health and well-being and trying to tackle and combat it. That's going to continue for series two. Um, But yeah, Scarlett Curtis, um, for those who don't know, she is a journalist, um, an activist and a mental health campaigner. She brought out a book last year, um, which was called Feminists Don't Wear Pink. And now she's brought out her second book, It's Not Okay to Feel Blue and Other Lies. And there are some fantastic pieces in there. There's essays from big names like Emma Thompson, like Fern Cotton, like like big mental health names. But then also they have people, there was, there was a guy, he was a Syrian refugee and talking mm-hmm. about his journey coming over to the UK and, and how that impacted on his mental health. It's nice to get Scarlett's you know, hear about her background and it was nice to sort of identify like the similar experiences that I myself have with her and you, of course, as well, Michael. So I think it was just interesting to find out more about the, 
narrator of these amazing books. Yeah, she doesn't she doesn't spend the next 40 minutes talking about her book. She no. talks about her story and, and her story is really interesting. And anyway, you're now going to hear our interview with Scarlett Kerr. So please enjoy. Hello, this is really exciting. We're joined by the writer, journalist and activist Scarlett Curtis. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> now, we always start our show very similarly to how you start your show. You always ask, are you a feminist? Yes. So we always start our podcast by asking, are you really fine? Very interesting question. I feel like this could be the whole podcast. I, yeah, I feel okay. I'm quite tired, but... um. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm happy to be here with you. I'm okay. It's like one of those loaded questions, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, I've had, I've been, I think, you know what I'm in? I've had a really bad patch recently, like the whole of August and then sort of on and off in September. I was just in a really bad place. And I think I've almost got that thing that you get when you're coming out of it, where you're like, you get an almost like boost of euphoria because you're just so happy that you don't feel awful. So I'm kind of in that at the moment, which is actually quite nice. That can almost be like an element of surprise, can't it, as well? Because when you're in that moment, you feel like it's just not going to go away sometimes. Oh, yeah, totally. And it's so funny because I've been through this so many times now and every time it ends and every time I still think it's never going to end. So for our listeners who don't know you, Scarlett, I mean, at the age of 24 now, right? All yes. right. Um, yeah, you boast a CV much longer than any of ours. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. You already have a Sunday Times bestsellers under your belt in your first book, Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies, which then became a companion podcast of the same name. And you have a new book out today called It's Not Okay to Feel Blue and Other Lies, which we'll talk about later on in the, in the podcast. But you also co-founded the Pink Protest, which is an action group aimed at helping young people take action online and in real life. So lots of things going on there. <laughs> yeah. how, do, how do you do all that? Like- um, okay, so actually this is like a huge part of my mental health. My therapist the other day said I needed to go to Workholics Anonymous, which is apparently a thing. Um, yeah, it's just to be honest work has always been like my safe space from my brain and from all my issues and it's always been like this one thing that no matter what was going on I could still do I started blogging when I was 15 and then writing like small journalist journalism pieces when I was 16 and it's the only it's been kind of the only consistent element of my life uh and it's the only thing that yeah it's like a safe space you know I find it so much easier to work than I do to like have friends or have a relationship or go out to parties. Is that because, I mean, I, I feel like that as well sometimes. Is, is it because you find that you're so busy at work and you're in so much of a routine, you haven't got time to think about your mental health problems? Yeah, I think that is it. I also think I, I mean, we can, I'm sure we'll reverse round to this, but when I was in a really, really bad place, it was sort of the like feminism and the activism that, brought me out of it and I think especially when you feel like either you are lucky enough to do something you love or you're doing something that you feel means something even if it's only you know a tiny little bit it's a it's a really great way it was a really great way for me to find purpose after feeling so purposeless for so long and yeah I just always felt like it was something I could lose myself in and I've had so many issues with being so insecure and not confident but for some reason works the one area where I'm like really confident um and 
my mum always just says she wishes I could like be the same in dating or in friends as I am with work because I just go into work like I'm amazing and everything yeah. else I'm, I've, I don't feel that way. I was listening to something where you were talking about and you yes. said that it was an easy place for you to go to to talk about feminism and because there was a relationship between feminism and mental health and you, you went that way first before looking at mental health in a bigger picture, if that makes sense. Totally, yeah. And I think there's actually a piece in this new book called Feminism as a Form of Self-Help and it's kind of about how much feminism helped me come out of a really, really, really dark place. It was like the first thing that gave me kind of community and friends and purpose and helped me overcome so many of these huge fears I had because I felt like I had to do these things, you know, like if there was a protest, I'd normally never have been in a crowd that big ever, but I was like, so felt like I needed to be there that I would overcome what I was going through to be there and so I think yeah and I also think the two are so tied like so many um so so much mental health issues are caused by like the patriarchy and sexism and toxic masculinity and also I think feminism can be a really amazing way out of lots of those things I, I, we could, you should have asked us the question if we, we were no but like I'd love to get to a day where it's not a conversation, but I know listening to your podcast, that conversation comes up quite a lot. No, totally. And I think a lot of women feel like that. I just really like talking about it. But I think just one thing that putting this book together as well made me realize is like just how much it's hurt men as well. This whole system of power and the patriarchy and everything, because that's really what every single man in the book wrote about was some version of toxic masculinity or pressure or feeling they couldn't talk about their emotions and I don't you know in, within all kind of feminist communities we all mention that I don't think I'd ever really like fully understood it until this book for those who are joining us for the first time basically the premise of what we do is we are journalists and like you and this is a safe space for people to tell our stories and you know if someone who has been brave enough to share our stories about mental health maybe we could get more people talking about it in the bigger picture of just like what your book does. You've had roles working in like the UN and things like that. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I know, I know it sounds really, I know you're working on a, a, it was like a youth project, wasn't it? Yeah. I, I got weirdly early into um, like doing a lot of social media for different charities yeah. and activist organizations. So I used to work for Global Citizen, which is a great activist group. And then, yeah, I did some stuff with the UN, but it does sound, a, it was mostly just me sort of, walking through the building in two short skirts, <laughs> but <do you> just, <laughs> posting tweets. <laughs> but do you think like activate, I know activism is, is so important in, in mental health. And do you think that, you know, that stemmed anywhere from you? Was it like your childhood or was it where you were raised or anything like that? Or Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's too, fo- to answer the first bit, it's, it's too focused. I think for, as I said, for me, activism really helped me overcome a lot of the, struggles I was going through just because it did give me this sense of purpose and this kind of reason to get out of bed in the morning um but I also think yeah I mean what makes me so sad is the reason that podcasts like this are needed or the reason that books like ours is needed is because the care just isn't there at the moment and I think we are genuinely in the middle of this crisis that isn't going to go away and you know, you get these people complaining that we're all talking about anxiety all the time, but 
you know, it takes, I was looking at something the other day that was saying it takes the average young person 10 years to find appropriate therapy. And even though like 30% of young people have a diagnosable mental health condition before they're 16 and, you know, it's like we need to be having this conversation because the work just isn't being done and it's ridiculous that it isn't. So for you, Scarlett, when when did depression and anxiety sort of fathom for you? I mean, did it begin, you think, when you were a younger child or is it something that's happened recently? So I was diagnosed officially with anxiety, depression and PTSD. And I think the PTSD for me is the kind of umbrella one that has been my most prominent label Mm. I guess but so I always think of it as having started when I went through this trauma in my teens but actually if I look back I definitely was always anxious like my mum was saying the other day that she she didn't go for a wee without me until I was five years old because I just like couldn't leave her side and I was very kind of nervous and it's funny I think whenever you go to therapy and stuff they make you try and track it back really early and yeah (laughs) yeah and also then it's like well I I don't know I was always quite anxious but I was definitely okay and then when I was 14 I had this operation on my back which went something went wrong in it and I was basically in suddenly in having gone from like no pain nothing barely went to the doctors I was in chronic pain for three years um I couldn't really walk I had to drop out of school no one really knew what was wrong with me and what was going on so I was in and out of all these different kind of treatments and wrong things Mm -hmm. um and during that time I was always very insistent that I was fine I was like would sort of really egg up this idea that I was dealing with it really well and I was you know I had my blog and I was like would wear pink every day and I was really chirpy and I did loads of crafts and baking and I think I felt like if I said how much I was struggling it would become about that not about figuring out what was wrong with me physically like I felt Mm. like it would kind of undermine um what was wrong with me physically and also I mean I I don't know I think it's getting better now but I used to just hear these stories about these like kids that got sick and would like read all the works of Shakespeare and like you know start a charity and um we're just so happy every day and brought joy to their family's life and I was not that I was really well and then I but I tried to be you know I was like I'm gonna be that perfect sick child um do you think that's the anxiety putting that pressure on yourself though yeah for sure and I also just think that time was so intense and and I there was so much going on. Um, I was quite seriously misdiagnosed for a really, really long time. And so I had a lot of people telling me I was crazy. Um, they kind you talk of, about that in the book, don't you? Yes. Yeah. So they thought I'd ma- I was making up the pain that I was in. So I think because I was from such a young age, I was told I was crazy. I it became something I was so allergic to and so like wanted to fight off for so long. Um, And then when I was 17, I had this kind of miracle operation that took all my pain away within like six months. Um, So by the time I was 18, I was pain free. And again, I'd like imagined this life when I was pain free and it was just like me 
traveling and running marathons and jumping off buildings and like you know like doing all this please don't jump off buildings no like you know whatever (laughs) paragliding whatever and um yes not actually jumping off buildings that was more (laughs) the reality of it um and uh then six months in I tried to go back to school and six months in I just had the word breakdowns kind of overused but a complete collapse and I then for the next kind of two years I couldn't really leave the house without having a panic attack I completely socially isolated I was just yeah I was really 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 bad um you think that's because you dealt with the physical side of the pain for so long that when that was finally sorted out it was time to focus on that that side of things definitely yeah I think I'd been like trying to be strong for so long and also it's so interesting how many people's issues develop in their teens you know I was diagnosed with PTSD depression and anxiety at 17 and I dropped out of school as well so when I was when I was reading your story I was like oh my goodness like twins but for me my big thing was there wasn't the support there so I had a I had a counsellor and when I turned 18 it wasn't available on that oh, part of wow. the NHS. So I lost the therapist. So as soon as I wasn't a child yeah. anymore, therapist was like, so um, I've got, I've got to leave you now. Oh my God. And I mean, I've never gone back to a therapist since, but that was a huge thing for me. And yeah. Cause I also think a lot, it's very hard to talk about, but some of therapy can be quite traumatic if you haven't found the right thing yet. And especially if you're young, I think often we don't know. Yeah. How to deal with, I mean, the reason there are so many people in this book and it's not just me is because I had a very like privileged experience with mental health. I was, my parents could always afford treatment and we tried a lot of different things, but sometimes it breaks my heart to like tell people that even within that, it, I, it took me years to find someone that actually helped. And I had some really kind of bad experiences within that time. What was wrong with you, with your back, Scarlett? What was what was the underlying problem when when you eventually got diagnosed? So I had scoliosis, um, which they found when I was fourteen, and then I had this operation to straighten my spine, which they they say is a very simple operation, and actually it, it's very it's quite intense. And I've since I've been talking about it more, I've had a lot of messages from people who've had sort of. Because there's this specific scoliosis operation mostly happens to teenage girls. And so they said to me, you know, you'll be fine. You'll be walking in a day. You'll be back at school in a week. And I was like, great. I'm just going to watch Grey's Anatomy and like everyone's going (laughs) to be nice to me and bring me sweets. Um, And then. With McDreamy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's going to be Grey's Anatomy and I'm going to be watching Grey's Anatomy. It's going to be heaven. Um, And. Then I woke up and already we knew something was wrong because I was just in complete agony. And, you know, it's one of those like car crash situations where loads of things happened. But it turned out I had this I have this problem with my enzymes and my metabolism where I metabolize drugs too quickly. So everything just kind of comes in my system and goes straight out. So I was on I was, you know, a tiny 14 year old girl and I was on morphine and I could I could feel all the pain and it, Already then the doctors were like, no, you definitely can't feel this pain. Like you're on drugs. Um, So throughout this whole time, I could never yeah, get any relief from pain relief, which I think now is a weird blessing because, you know, they put me on OxyContin for like three years, which would have been a whole other issue if Mm. it actually worked on me. Um, 
But yeah, so then basically what we, this took two and a half years to find out, but one of the screws that was in my spine was going too far into my spine. So, um, yeah, it was just a lot of pain and then it all went away, which in itself was quite a shocking experience because by the time I got pain free, I'd fully accepted that was, I was, that was never going to happen. Like I thought my life was going to be what it was. And I'd kind of done a lot of grieving and work to accept that. And then suddenly I had all this opportunity and potential and yeah, but something I want to talk to you about as well, which just cause you went through it at the same time, what me and my family used to talk about, which was so hard was like, I was 17 and then 18 and then 19. And I had all these issues and depression, anxiety and PTSD. But then as the years went on, like I dropped out of school. I didn't get A-levels. My friends got A-levels. I was falling behind. I didn't have any friends. I couldn't socialize all this stuff like on and on and on and on. And you, the, the hellish thing about mental health issues like this is you, it starts with the problem and then you get into a position where your life is quite depressing in itself. And actually, if anyone was dropped into it, they'd be sad anyway. So for me, getting out of it was always this like two handed process of trying to pull back some elements of normalcy in my life and also trying to heal my brain and do that kind of inner work. It is interesting because it's I the big thing about it. And someone was saying this on your podcast when you were at Latitude. I can't remember who it was, but it is about the friendships that you have with you mm. that push you through that. Mm. Because, I mean, I remember I cut out a lot of my friends and I used, I image that I've got in my head right now is I remember sitting in, in my bed and I sat there for two weeks mm. and just did not move, did not leave. And my phone would be at the side of the bed and I'd have messages piling up from friends going, are you okay? Yeah. I'm here for you. Because it had my, my, I, had, I was in a car incident and then oh, wow. that's where I got my PTSD right. from that. And then I spiraled into really being really depressed, really anxious. I lost like a load of weight and then I put it all back on now, but the, 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 <laughs> I lost like a load of weight. And then yeah. I dropped out of school as well. And then I just, I was okay because I sort of reset the next year and then I just went off to uni and just left right, it yeah. and I just parked those feelings for you so many years I came out of uni got a job and then was in a really bad job I'm, I'm getting the sense that you didn't leave it yeah well I tried to I really tried yeah. um I tried everything it, I think in it's called pulling a geographical but I just kept trying to kind of run away so I my granny lives in Suffolk well she has a house there and she's not always there and I used to go there for like months at a time on my own and just kind of try and this like mad Virginia Woolf 18 year old like sitting on the beach in winter trying to make my brain feel better um and then when I was 19 because I I had had got I'd got two GCSEs and no A levels and I like you had this kind of thing in my head that if I could just go to university I'd be okay because that was the normal thing to do um and I actually sat my SATs, which is like the American University entrance exam from my rehab. I used to do all my revision there and then I went out to take the test and then came back. And then I got into NYU. Which is incredible. Which, yeah, which was amazing and it was like a miracle. But then I, you know, at 19, I just, 
having not, I mean, literally having not left the house for five years, I decided to move to New York, which was the most, looking back, like, I, yeah, it's, it's hard. And I think also for any teenagers that go through any of this, you don't realise how young you are at the time because you're dealing with something so serious, but you are still so young. And I, I kind of just wish someone had been like, you're still a baby, like, please don't leave. But yeah, so I moved to New York and that was when, um, yeah, I remember the day before I moved to New York, I had a drink in a cafe with a friend and a coffee and I was, that was the first time I'd left the house. <laughs> and then I moved to New York on my own. Um, and things talk, got, talk about a big step. <laughs> yeah, I know. And things, yeah, things definitely got worse then, but then they did get better. And I do think having that again, like I was saying earlier, the one thing I was really low for the first few years in New York, but I loved, I'd been out of education for so long and the feeling of being in a classroom again and learning things was like such a miracle. And I would sort of stay in bed all day, go to class get back in bed um but I did having that routine I don't think I'd have gotten out of it without it when you were in New York because I was reading your blog post depression is a full-time job oh yeah and for me it resonated with me a lot um you, you talk about how it can um, make you feel guilty um, and, and how you compare yourself a lot to others particularly when you know you were talking about having lazy days and, and, and things like that I mean do you think we were too hard on ourselves as a society especially when we're battling depression do you think it's and anxiety do you think it's so easy to compare yourself to others I mean it's so easy and it's mm. I'd still I'd say to this day that's still the thing I struggle with most you know the thing about it being a full-time job is so true. I mean, it just takes, if you let it, it can take up every second of your day. The other day I was in a quite a good place and I had this feeling and I was like, I don't know what this feeling is. Like, and kind of talking to my friends and I realised I was bored and I realised I literally have not been bored in like eight years because my brain is always racing to such a level yeah. that the idea that I'd be bored has never happened. Um, but it's funny, I mean, it, it's still really hard for me because I think people say, you know, a lot of people say that I definitely do work a lot and work quite obsessively. But one of the reasons I think I do is because I still have days, if not weeks, where I cannot do anything. I cannot look at my phone. I cannot get out of bed. I cannot read an email. I had one a few weeks ago and I was trying to make like a list of something that because I'm always trying to pull myself back from it and I realised I couldn't look at words or write words like my brain had just shut off completely and it was like nothing was going in and so there's this funny thing where I think you always feel like you're making up or at least for me I always feel like I'm making up for those moments and I always feel like I never know when they're going to come and so when they're not there I have to almost push myself as hard as possible just to get some stuff in before I crash again and you also mentioned that the fact that it's hard work and and it's you know having depression and it's work you need to focus on and, and excuse yourself for and and mm. that last bit I found very true because sometimes you don't allow yourself the time to 
feel down and because you feel so bad for being in that mood would you agree completely that's almost yeah. the one thing I look I I try not to ever regret anything but the one thing looking back over my sort of experience that I wish I'd done is just let myself be in it and not mm. try because you try and fight against it and it at least for me it didn't work like I could try and you know get pull myself out of it myself and it just didn't work again and again it didn't work and I wish I had just been kinder to myself and been like if you need to stay in bed all day week month year two years that's okay and it will one day end but for now just focus on like getting through the minutes of the day because that's all you can do yeah it's hard because especially when you're when you're in that moment and you're surrounded by family and friends who want you to get better you almost feel a sense of guilt as well yeah totally and I also think my family are very optimistic and they're amazing and they were so supportive but it would always be like I'm doing a lot she's doing a lot better you know she's really much better than she was last week or much better than she was last month and we were always I always had to be on this upward spiral you know and getting better and just just that whole thing of like what even is better and I remember there was this day when I just realized I was never going to be better like it was never going to be gone I truly don't think I'll ever not be at risk of you know crashing I don't think I'll ever live without anxiety and I'm really fine with that. Like, I think for mm. so many years... No, really, I, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, no, really, I'm fine with that. No, really, I'm fine. It's okay. Um, but I, like, that's really fine. Like, it, it, I can live with this. It's not the worst thing in the world. And for me, that moment when I accepted it was never going to go was maybe the biggest moment. It is that realisation, isn't it? Because in myself, I've only realised that it is okay if you want to go and order that huge pizza, sit in your house and do nothing or, and watch your Grey's Anatomy yeah. all day, then you just do it. And like, that's been a realisation for me. Realized. It's funny. I know it completely now. Yeah. And then when I'm in it, I feel so guilty and horrible. And it's really hard to take my own advice. Like maybe I need to actually listen to this podcast, but I am getting much better at it. And what I've found is if I fight against it, because I get these really just huge waves of depression. And if I fight against it, it'll last a week. And if I give myself a day in bed, it'll last a day. And that is just, you know, and the thing that's most helpful that my mum says to me every time is she just says, imagine if you had a broken leg. So if you had a broken leg, you'd stay in bed, you'd ask people to bring you soup, you'd watch TV. This is exactly the same as the broken leg. And it's just trying to understand that all the people and all the work will still be there after. It is interesting when you say about having that physical health problem. Mm. And like we always say on this, I think it's part of our trigger warning for every episode. We always say, you know, that mental health is just as important as physical health. Mm. You've had that experience where it's been both of them together. I don't, I don't know for you, when you've got those of physical health and mental health coming together as, as being one issue, probably as a society, we're not great at realising they should be the same thing. Yeah, I mean, totally. And it was hard. I think it was hard for me because for so long with my physical health, they thought it was my mental health and all of that. But, and this might, this is just my own experience. This is not me speaking for anyone else. But for me, the struggle with mental health has been harder than 
um, my struggles with my physical health were. And that, I think it's just because there was, it was, I didn't have a language for talking about it. I remember like, you know, after I'd have an operation, it'd be this amazing thing where my mum would buy me pyjamas and people would come over and bring sweets and like, you know, I'd get visitors and I'd get people make me drinks and none of that happens when you've had a breakdown and haven't showered in a week and are like lying in bed growling every time someone comes in the room. You know, it's just people don't know how to deal with you and people get scared to talk about it. And also I think with me, it really hit just before this new conversation had emerged. And I used to just obsessively search the internet for stories of people that were going through what I was going through or had made it out. And, and it there was there. just nothing. There yeah. was either like people, you know, things like um, Girl Interrupted or The Bell Jar, which are like amazing novels, but they're very glamorized, fictionalized things. Or there was like Skins. Remember Effie and Skins had depression <laughs> yeah. for a while and she had like those pills next to her bedside table and I just didn't I felt I felt like I was broken and I felt so ashamed and I felt like I would never I felt like I was a burden I mean I think one of the reasons I moved to New York is because I just felt like I'd been such a burden on my family for so long and I couldn't put them through it anymore like my I still I've got three younger brothers and they they're so amazing but they say like we just grew up with you screaming in the bedroom and we didn't know what was wrong. And that was just you. They're like, you know, we just got on with our homework, but it was just so, it'd been so many years. And, and also the, what, so whenever you're sick or mentally ill, I think there become these markers. Like it was always like, you'll be better by Christmas. You'll be better by your birthday. You'll be better by Halloween. And I'd hit every single marker and it wouldn't be better and I wouldn't be better and I wouldn't be better and went on for so long and it it wasn't you know cute anxiety on the tube which I have now and like people find it easy to talk about like now I'm you know a bit anxious and a bit depressed and people find it easiest to talk about but then it was like suicidal thoughts every day you know not able to talk not able to function the most intense PTSD and and it just wasn't I didn't know how to talk about it this is a fantastic segue. <laughs> We're so great. But I guess that's why you turned to writing and compiling these essays and you started with your first book, which was Feminists Don't Wear Pink. Yes. That came out exactly a year ago. Exactly I'm a year ago, yeah. So is there a theme there? Yes. Well, actually, you know what it is? It comes out on October 3rd, which for <laughs> any loyal fans out there will know is Mean Girls Day. Of course yeah. it yeah. is. Oh, that yes. wasn't planned, but it's quite fun. That's so fair. We're yeah. airing on the 10th, which is yes, World which Mental is Health, World Mental Health Day. Day. So it's out now. Um, mm. But anyway, your first book, you turned to talk about feminism. And how did you get from thinking mental health, feminism? Yeah, I think, to be honest, I, so I started writing about mental health when I was 18 and it was on my blog. And I remember it was a really dramatic post called Where I've Been. Because I had a knitting blog and no one knew that I was sick or anything. I still knit and do cross stitch. But so I had this knitting blog. No one knew I was sick. And then I took like six months off because I had a breakdown. I posted this post like where I've been. It was sort of me revealing my story. And I got all these comments and it was so amazing. It was like the first time I'd realized how many people out there had the same thing as me. And it was it was such a powerful feeling. And even like people in my real life coming up to me and telling me their story that I was like kind of wish you told me this a year ago but I'm glad that my story helped you open up um and then 
I really pulled back from it because I actually felt quite irresponsible at the time talking about it because it was quite early on in this conversation and I felt like there weren't many resources out there that I could point people towards and I would just get these messages and it was very intense and I also was still so in the middle of it and I think I felt like I needed to step away a bit and you know get myself on track mental health wise and understand it a bit more and work with a few more charities and work with a few more support systems to before I wanted to do it again publicly and in that time I yeah I got very very involved with a lot of feminist activism and for me as I said it was kind of that feminist it was feminist reading and activism and the friends I made through that that helped me through it but after we did Feminist Don't Wear Pink I met the people that run this text line shout which is the UK's first 24-7 crisis text line so you can text in anytime um, and there'll be someone there to help you and support you and point you in the right direction and it's all volunteer led and it when I met them I actually like burst into tears but I think it was the first time I felt like there was something out there that made it safe for me to talk about men- mental health mm-hmm. without necessarily not having that safety net for people because yeah I mean you guys must know it's it's very intense yeah what I've found is when people do get in touch with you you want to help them and you want to help them by saying well I've been through this as well and this is what I did but sometimes for me to talk about those dark moments you're already in that place anyway so then you think is it wise for me to carry on having this conversation it's so hard and I think that's why I actually try and talk about it from more of like a structural perspective and talk about funding and care and the ways what something I was really trying to do with this book was show like how intersectional mental health can be and you know I've been through hell even though I had all the privilege in the world but it also wasn't the same hell as someone who you know just the ways in which race and class and disability and illness and uh, sexuality all intersect with mental health and we need to be looking at that more and I think the book really shows that which I'm really proud of but yeah, when you're talking about your own story and then, you know, you have a day where you can't get out of bed and you're getting all these messages from people going like, you've really helped me or you're such an inspiration. You feel like a complete sort of fraud because I don't, don't want to say that word, but yeah, you yeah, do. You do. Yeah. I guess, although actually I was saying the other day, like I do get imposter syndrome for quite a lot of stuff, but talking about mental health is something I do not have imposter syndrome about mm, because I'm yeah. like, I've really done my 10,000 hours in this. <laughs> I haven't got there yet. Maybe it's the journalist in me. I just prefer going, why didn't you just tell me about the yeah. and I don't want to talk about it, you know? No, yeah. I'm the same. And I think it's just, it's hard. I think, I basically think the reason we're in this situation where all this pressure has been put on individual members of the public that speak about mental health is because, as I said, like the actual care that should be there isn't there, you know? They'd never give someone a book if they were struggling with cancer and be like, this will this will work instead of treatment you know Mm. so talking about feminism then would you say that was one of your coping mechanisms for your mental health yeah definitely it was just a way so I was in New York and I didn't really have any friends and I didn't have I like barely left house and then I just saw something on Instagram and I went to this like activist meeting in um a woman's basement in the Bronx and 
I because I, I've been reading everything and I've been studying feminism and it, I just became obsessed with it and it really helped me make sense of all this stuff I'd been through and the way people had treated me when I was sick and it really just helped me make sense of everything and that was a huge way I lifted a lot of the self-blame that I'd been living with was when I kind of realized it was actually part of this much bigger structural picture um and then yeah I just went to this my first like activism gathering thing and it was the first time I'd felt like I could do something that would help and maybe be a part of something and it just all kind of stemmed from there. But I do think for a lot of women, feminism can be a way to reframe their experience and sort of help them understand what actually happened. Cause I think, yeah, we are all, we're all lenient towards self-blame. Um, so yeah, one year on where you've got your second book out, it's mm-hmm. not okay to feel blue and other lies. So would you say this book is a, is a bit more personal than the first, a bit more personal for you? Um, I think so. I mean, it's it was interesting. So when we were doing events with Feminists Don't Wear Pink, at every event, the thing that kept coming up and up again and again was mental health, whether it was like girls struggling with the pressures of being a woman, whether it was men struggling with talking, like whatever it was, mental health was this running theme. And it just made me realise again, like we really needed to do this book. I think it is more personal for me and I've written a lot of very personal pieces. Um, but I also as I was saying, like, I really hope the book as a whole kind of is just a real insight into like what's happening within this huge issue. I have to admit, I only got like a little look at the book on Friday, yes. so like two days ago. It's very but, big. But as well, it, and yeah, and how many people are contributing 74. to it? 74. So do you think that the breadth of having that many people contribute helps you reach so many different people to talk about yeah, this? Yeah, I think the thing for me is like, stories can help so much with mental health they can help you especially the shame I mean the shame is the thing that I think kills you and hearing someone else's story is just a way to completely remove that shame but I think often we have an issue where we're only telling one type of story and maybe you know for me I was always searching to find my story within other people's writings and and for you know I there are lots of stories about girls like me but also it it was occasionally hard to find things like specifically dealing with the combination of physical and mental illness and everything and just I really something I really want to show this book is either if you don't feel you do understand mental health or you maybe have someone in your life and you want to understand it more I think it's a really good book for that but I also think hopefully in one of those stories you might find a little bit of information that relates to you and something else I've that's been really beautiful about putting it together is we're all so fragmented at the moment and I think we all feel so separated and you know like we're all in these identities and we're all at kind of war with each other and it's it's a really scary time I think especially for a lot of young kids who don't really understand what's really going on but something amazing about this story is you can be reading a piece by a person who you thought was completely different from you and there's can be something in that that just relates to everything you felt you know there's a piece by this amazing man called Steve Alley who's a really incredible writer in um, Silversmith and he came over from Syria a few years ago and he's written about kind of his journey and about trauma and you know he has been through like the worst thing imaginable and we couldn't have had more different lives but there's so much in his description of PTSD that 
is exactly what I felt and exactly what I went through. And I think for anyone that feels lonely, there's something so beautiful when you realise that you can find your story in other people's stories. You have all of these different people. So you've got like yes. Sam Smith, Emma Thompson, <laughs> Ben Platt, who I'm in love with, people who have been refugees that have come over from Syria. And, and then you've got people who've had difficulties that we possibly could never imagine. Is it a lot of research? Um, Yeah, it was. I mean, luckily I've been kind of talking, luckily I've been talking about mental health for a long enough time now to have met a lot of people, whether it was at like work with a charity or a panel or whatever it was. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of research, a lot of like reaching out to people on Instagram and being like, hi, please, mm-hmm. can I send you an email? Um, going a bit mad, but I just, I knew the kind of stories I wanted there. And also there's so many different ways to look at this issue. If you don't ask, you don't get do you? That's my motto. If you don't ask, you don't from, you, can't, exactly. you can't tell from my accent at all, but I'm from Newcastle originally. And like, you, we always go, shy bands getting out. And that's, that's oh what we always gosh, say. Like, yeah. So like, you know, if we're not, if we're not, we're, we're really a journalist, aren't we? So we're just Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, I know. You've got to be, got to really go for it. I know your hope, Scarlett, is for more conversation on mental health. So what are your next steps on, on you know, your mental health journey, particularly with this book? Um, I mean, I think, more conversation definitely and it's what we need I think for me especially more conversation around the intersectionality of mental health different identities different ways that people struggle different issues they face you know someone like Steve and another of my friends who's from Syria have had so much trouble finding Arabic therapists because Mm. it's just hard enough to find a therapist let alone the NHS let alone someone that specifically deals with trauma let alone someone that speaks Arabic like it's a long yeah. journey and that is the kind of thing we never think about when we talk about the, these issues. Um, I also just really want the government to do better. You know, in 2017, Jeremy Hunt promised to put a counsellor in every school, um, which is something that should be happening anyway because yeah. it's a basic human right. And I speak to so many teenagers who are struggling and have nowhere to turn, no way to access therapy and your school should be the place you can get that. But if you look at what he's actually aiming for within that bill, he's aiming for like 20% by 2024, which I think with the way things are going at the moment with politics and the news and the pressures young people are under and the climate, we can't, it can't take that long. Like these are the kind of Mm. things that need to happen now and that money needs to properly be spent on it. If anything, money has gone down for mental health resources in the last few years. And we, and we, and we obviously can't talk about Brexit about why as well about that, because that's just going to give us more mental health conditions. But exactly. And, and I think the <laughs> politics at the moment is really affecting people and it's hitting a place that it hasn't hit us before, you know, and we've got too much access to it as well. It's just all terrifying. When you did um, Femmes Don't Wear Pink. Yes. That was a particular shade of pink, wasn't it? No. And this one isn't a particular shade of blue. It isn't. And, it isn't. No, yeah, and I really just, tried just to, it's just blue. I really tried to find some meaning in the blue, but I think that pink was a special one. Yeah, I for, yeah. for people that don't know, tell us yeah, about Yeah, so the Feminist was in a colour called Baker Miller Pink, which was invented by this scientist because he believed it reduced aggression and promoted happiness. And he would paint prisons Baker Miller Pink and they had all these incredible outcomes where the prisoners would suddenly be... Totally non-aggressive, and I'm gonna yeah. pay, I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna go home and paint my house. <laughs> yes, pay, well, I basically pay, said yeah. it was a solution to the patriarchy because he'd do it in male prisons, and all these men who'd been very aggressive suddenly were very calm, calm and kind. Ah, but, in, but also you've dyed, you've dyed your hair. Yes, that, I have dyed my hair blue. That that is enough. You can't see um, that. <laughs> People can't. You see can't that. see it. I've got blue hair. Um, 
I just told everyone I was going to do it for so long and then I had to do it. I did, it's fine. Because you did the same way with you when you did the first book. I did pink it. when I did the first one, yeah. <laughs> my hair definitely was a reaction or a solution to my PTSD because when I, it was, it, it was a huge thing for me to not look like how I'd looked when I was sick mm. and bleaching my hair and dyeing it bright pink did that and also just made me happy every time I looked at it. And I don't think it's vain or, you know, frivolous. I think it's a really big thing. If you look in the mirror and you see the same person that you were when you were suffering, it's hard. Thank you so much for coming on Scarlet. And, you know, if you'd like to get a copy of her fantastic book, It's Not Okay to Feel Blue, you can get it from all good bookstores now and available as an ebook and audiobook online. Thank you guys so much for having me. I think what you're doing is so important and amazing and it's been a no, pleasure thank- to... It's been lovely to get you on. Like when I, I was thinking for a couple of months to get you on and um, Clarissa, who you know, yes. who works for ACAST, who produced, uh, how we put, yes. how us put our podcast out to lots of people. So thank you, ACAST. You're like good friends of us. So yeah, like, Clarissa's amazing. She's one of my favourite people. <laughs> Hi, Clarissa. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much. So much.